Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. Today's conversation is with David Rand. David is an associate professor of management science and brain and cognitive sciences at MIT. His work in behavioral economics and psychology uses a cognitive science perspective that's grounded in the tension between intuitive and deliberative modes of decision-making. His research explores topics such as cooperation and prosociality, punishment and condemnation, misinformation, political preferences, and the dynamics of social media behavior. In this conversation, David and I discuss the importance of bridging the gap between theory and application. And we also talk about misinformation and polarization in the context of the pandemic. Thanks so much for joining us. So um, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom with us. This is such a such an incredible time and your research right now is just incredibly important. And it's, uh, I think that must be, um, you know, it's the, the, the beauty of this kind of research having such a, a important opportunity for it to be applied. Here's to hoping that uh, it can be useful. <laughs> <laughs> Great, well, I've, I've got a bunch of questions that I wanted to discuss with you today. Um, and, and some of these really, uh, uh, hone in on your your prior research and, and and background as an academic, and so so the first one is about where your uh, scientific career started, which was in computational biology and systems biology. Um, before you moved into the world that I'm in, in behavioral science and and studying decision making, can you tell us more about? that journey and, um, and how that led you to be so fascinated with human behavior and decision-making. Yeah, totally. So I have certainly had a, a non-standard trajectory. Um, I, uh, in, in high school, I like biology and I like computer science or like, you know, programming basically. And so in college, I started as a computer science major. Um, but I, at, like at that time, the, computer science. Basically, I thought it was going to be cool because I like writing programs, but it turned out it was all about proving theorems about how quickly a computer program could theoretically run. And I was like, that's not cool. Um, or rather, that's not my jam. And so I switched into <laughs> biology. <laughs> uh, and I did this sort of computational biology research, um, which I thought was fine. Like, I didn't love it, but I thought it was fine. Uh, and then I got a job at a biotech startup after uh, undergrad where I was making these math models of electrical properties of heart cells uh, and like playing in a punk rock band and spending like all my half my time at work booking shows and stuff like that. I mean, like, well, this is fine, but whatever. Um, and then I decided to go back to grad school and I applied to these, you know, sort of computational biology programs because that's what I had been doing. Um, and then my first semester in grad school, I took uh, like an introduction to evolutionary game theory class, which sort of made sense from the biology perspective because it was evolution, but really like, I learned about the prisoner's dilemma and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. This is like so much cooler than anything that I've been studying before. Like this is the thing uh, that I wanna do. And um, there was an experimental economist grad student that was visiting the same research group where I was at the time and we hit it off and was like, oh, these math models are cool, but like seeing what people actually do, that's really cool. And so I started doing uh, experiments um, and I was like, oh, this is really fun. And then I, I think I actually heard Josh Green, the moral psychologist at Harvard on Radio Lab. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I saw that he was giving a talk and I went to it and I went up afterwards and I said, hey, this like moral psych stuff is cool. And he's like, oh, well, I just moved to Harvard. Like you should come to my lab meetings. And so I hung out in Josh Green lab meetings for like two years without it having anything to do with anything that I was working on just because I thought it was cool. 
And then after long enough, I was in it deep enough that I was like, oh, like now I get this stuff and I see how I can apply it to questions that I'm interested in. And so that's how I brought the sort of cognitive science, like dual process, like intuition deliberation stuff into the economic game world, which is sort of what my thing was for a long time. Can you talk a little bit more about the specific, those early days connections that you were making and some of the specific moral psychology challenges and where, um, you know, if it's okay to, to, to yeah. just, you know, yeah, dig yeah, deep sure. in here because that, I find that stuff fascinating when, when those like aha connections are made. To me, that's just such a, a powerful part of advances in knowledge when that happens. So I'd love to hear kind of your early stage of like, wait a second, a little more about yeah, that. Yeah, 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 totally. So so uh, Josh Green, at that time, the, the work that he was doing was on these uh, like trolley problem moral dilemmas, you know, like, should you kill one person to save five people uh, sort of uh, things. And uh, he had been doing this from a neuroscience perspective. And like the, what he was really known for was distinguishing between the sort of automatic emotional uh, desire not to kill the one person and the more kind of rational, deliberative, utilitarian calculus of, oh, well, actually, you should in order to save the five people. Um, and so I thought that was cool uh, or interesting. And I, I hung out in his group for a long time. Um, and so I started learning this way of thinking about decision making of like this sort of Danny Kahneman thinking fast and slow uh, type perspective of, you know, slow, careful uh, deliberation versus sort of fast, automatic, uh, intuitive responses. Um, and what I had been studying was not moral dilemmas, but moral behavior, let's say, that as we're doing these uh, economic games, you give people money, they decide how much to keep to themselves or how much to contribute to something that benefits everyone in the group. Um, and have been doing, you know, looking at different mechanisms to get people to cooperate. And then at some point I was like, oh, I can use the same techniques that like Josh Green and company have been using to look at trolley problems. I could use that to look at cooperation. And is it that people are intuitively selfish and they have to have to use rational self-control to make themselves do the right thing, which at that time was the sort of dominant uh, sense that people had, although there hadn't really been much research on it. But if you just ask people, like I would do a poll at the beginning of my talk and most of the room would raise their hand for intuitively selfish, have to use self-control to make yourself do the right thing. Um, or is it the other way around that people are intuitively predisposed to cooperate but then when they stop and think about it, if it's a sort of one shot anonymous situation where they can get away with being selfish, then thinking more makes them realize, oh, actually the rational thing to do is to be selfish, so I should do that. Um, <clears throat> and I sort of thought from various uh, sort of theoretical perspectives, I would expect the latter thing, which is if you think, where do, you in where do your intuitions come from? Uh, your intuitive responses if you think about this in the way of your like heuristics and rules of thumb, it would make sense that the, the rule of thumb would be treat interactions as if you're gonna interact with the person again or you're being observed or whatever, because usually your important interactions are interactions with friends, family workers, coworkers, you know, like, uh, sorry, friends, family members, coworkers, people that you have future interactions with. And in those situations, it actually totally makes sense to cooperate. That is, it's self-interested, because if you don't cooperate today, then you face consequences tomorrow. And so it would make sense that we would internalize a sort of default of assume that there are future consequences. And so you should cooperate. And then if you stop and think about it, you might realize, oh, actually, I'm in a weird situation now where I can get away with it. And so that yeah. was my things put them together and when I when we ran those first experiments and I was really excited about it and I showed Josh Green he was like you sure somebody hasn't done this before this is like the oldest thing in economics the prisoner's dilemma and like the oldest thing in psychology and I was like well you know uh yeah so I, I think that there's really huge opportunities for um for uh like productive new ideas from bridging fields and sort of taking uh, tools from one field and tools from another field and putting them together. I feel like that's sort of really the essence of a lot of what I've done. Yeah, and and the other vector in this is um, applying um, research that's happening in academic settings uh, to contemporary real world challenges. 
and that's yet another bridge. Uh, the process of the process of science um, has no um, immediate obligations to quote unquote serve the world today. It's to it's to you know it's to build it's to build knowledge. I'm not inferring it's knowledge for knowledge's sake, but building knowledge is a lot of work and and you know making that next bridge to solving real world problems um, is a whole other set of of tasks that that need to be completed and yet you're also very interested in that uh, bridge between um, you know work in a theoretical uh, lab space but also applying that to real world challenges yeah totally and that's something that's very much evolved over my career that like at the beginning of grad school i very explicitly was like i just want to do things that i find interesting and I don't really care about the application, like the sort of the utility of it. Because I started in this biology program and actually it was like the year that I started grad school, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. And like a lot of the people in my program, because it was a biology program, they were doing like cancer research. And I like had this internal thing. I was like, I could do research on that. I just like don't find it interesting. And so like, I'm making this conscious decision to be like, I want to do this stuff that I just find like really interesting and compelling, even if it seems like not necessarily uh, useful. But then uh, over time, I sort of started, was feeling more and more like, well, okay, fine. This is fun to do this random stuff. But like, if I'm putting all this time into it, it really should be something that matters. And I think also, what was nice about the both the prisoner's dilemma stuff and then the misinformation uh, work that we've been doing more recently is that uh, relative to lots of other things you could be studying, the gap between the theory and the application is actually quite small. Um, and so it seemed natural to, uh, to try and bridge that gap. And I think also what I came to appreciate is that it is also really scientifically interesting and challenging to do that translation. And it's not like, oh, well, we showed something works when people play a prisoner's dilemma for $5. So like, all right, all done. We understand that one. You know, it's like, uh, that's, a, that's a little tip of an iceberg. And if you want to really understand, if you, if, you, if you really understand the psychology of what's going on, that means uh, you should be able to implement it. And conversely, if you can't successfully implement it, that means you know, in the real world, that means there are important aspects of the psychology that you didn't understand. Um, and so I think it, this like, people tend to see, that, at least in academia, there tends to be the discussion of like, oh, you do the interesting novel basic science, and then you do the boring translation where you just take the thing that you already know and apply it in the field, but like, that the only person that would say that is somebody that's never tried to actually apply it in the field. Um, sorry, did I freeze for a second? Uh, that is you yeah. froze for a second. Uh, yes. Like, yeah. Yeah, and that was uh, that was a great point that you were making. Um, All right, should I try it again? State that, especially the the last point that you yeah. made. Only yeah, 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 yeah. So. Like people, there, there's the sense that like basic science, you do the like novel, interesting research in the basic science, and then you do the boring, obvious oh, translation of, oh, well, we just apply it, this thing we already know, we just apply it in some, in some real world setting. But it's totally not like that. And the only person that would say that is someone that has never tried to do the translational application work. Uh, because it's just like, it's not that easy. And, and you really have to understand the psychology in order to figure out how to successfully apply it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, obviously, I'm a huge believer in the, in the same thing that, that you are about um, the, the, first of all, just fascinating aspects of applying knowledge to, to real world challenges. Um, that, that also strengthens the quality of that science. You can't just answer one little question, and as you, you know, as you said, you know, okay, right. there it is. We've contributed. Um, there's, there's uh, the science itself advances so much through um, that that process of of application. Totally. Um, I think one of the other challenges um, that that we face is, um, you know, so so you've you've crossed that divide, you know, from, from the academic walls into 
um, playing an active role in, in your research, um, responding to and growing by the real world. But I think we face some big, huge challenges the other way, where um, science and scientific institutions, um, and even the word, uh, you know, that's academic, um, all are pejoratives. And um, in the business world, um, being called an academic is, is, not a, is not a neutral statement about one's uh, profession. It's actually uh, derogatory because what it means is one is, is very theoretical, out of touch, um, even misinformed. Um, mm -hmm. I would love to start to back into talking about your research on misinformation um, in the context of understanding the barrier that we face in in science uh, being a two-way exchange? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the fact that most of the academy uh, doesn't value translational or like applied work is I think the, the flip side of the fact that also the people doing the applied work don't really take theoretical work uh, that seriously. And then I, I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but my guess is that if academics took the translational part more seriously, and, and like cared about it, then uh, there wouldn't be as much of a like poo-pooing of academia in the other direction. Because I think that essentially a lot of that is actually fair. <laughs> that a lot, a lot of people in industry being like, whatever, that's academic is not unreasonable because I think a really large majority of what is happening uh, in the academy is really extremely basic science research that it's not at all clear whether it translates or not. And people, as we were saying, aren't really interested in it, in, the, in that question of whether it translates. Um, and so if I was a person that was running an organization and trying to make decisions, uh, like the fact, I would, I would want to know more than this thing happened when I had somebody play a prisoner's dilemma for a dollar uh, and then be like, okay, let me make business decisions based on that. Um, and so I think that uh, it's a two-way street in the sense of, uh, it's, it's sort of is actually theoretically important for academics to go out and understand things in the real world. And also if academics want to have an impact in the world or want to have the things that they're learning be useful, that it's also critical that you go out and do things in the real world because people in the real world shouldn't take it seriously if you don't, is, yeah. is my that's great. I, let's build on that by talking about a couple of mandates that you have right now. So you actually are heading up the MIT uh, Human Cooperation Lab. You're a director there, but also, and this is a separate entity, um, the Applied Cooperation Team. So they're, they're two separate entities with two distinct mandates. Could, well, I guess first, could you talk about those mandates and then Let's, uh, let's again, talk about this bridge between uh, theory and practice. Yeah, totally. So, so the Human Cooperation Lab is my basic research group. Um, it's, you know, all of the grad students and postdocs and stuff that are working with me um, doing uh, either work on cooperation or on misinformation. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we're doing some combination of uh, applied and theoretical stuff, but really the goal within that organization is publishing papers in in journals and having impact on the scientific community. Um, and then the applied cooperation team is uh, this organization that I co-direct with Erez Yoeli, who's an economist at MIT that he and I have been working together forever. And Erez is actually the one that introduced me to field experiments. And the way I got from doing just prisoners dilemmas to like doing things in the real world was uh, through him, which I'm extremely uh, grateful for. Um, and so the idea of the applied cooperation team is sort of as the name suggests, trying to really do applied work, take the things that we've learned in the sort of basic science context and work on applying them to real problems with real organizations. Um, and so that involves some people from the human cooperation lab and then also some of our other co uh, collaborators uh, elsewhere. Um, but that are really interested in doing the real, the real world work. And so we have projects in sort of energy and sustainability, uh, projects in charitable giving, projects in health, 
Um, and those are sort of our three main verticals right now, although we have a little bit of stuff in um, criminal justice and a little bit of stuff in education. Um, but our sort of main focus is our, yeah, like things that, that are, I guess one overriding feature of, of the applied cooperation team is not just that we want to do applied work, but that we try to have uh, to do work that involves public goods in some way or other. Um, and also that is informed by a like really clear motivating theoretical framework. That is, I think one thing that often happens in the, uh, in the applying uh, basic science to you know, real world setting context is people are like, well, we've got a list. We just got like a laundry list of a million heuristics or biases or whatever. And let's see which one seems like it might be working here. Or like, I, I honestly, I think a lot of the time what it comes to is intuition. It's like, oh, we've studied, you know, you know we've done lots of research in the basic science sense, or we know that world. And so now what, here's a problem. What comes to mind as something that might be useful here? Okay, let's try it. Um, and I think that what, and you know, sometimes that works, but I think a lot of the time, uh, you know, our intuitions aren't really that great. Um, and so what Ares and I try to do is have the, the applied work be really firmly grounded in a particular theoretical framework, um, which is uh, this sort of centrality of reputation and reputation concerns to human social behavior. Um, like so much of our, of our social life is dominated by uh, wanting people to think well of us or not wanting people to think poorly of us, uh, that that becomes a really deeply ingrained part of human psychology. And so there are a variety of different ways uh, that you can leverage that to get people to do the right thing. Um, where right thing can be very broadly construed. Um, it's sort of obvious in the context of donating to charity, um, and then it's like a little bit more of a stretch when you say, say, installing solar panels you know, there's some self-interested component, but there's also some, uh, you know, sort of public good component. Um, and then also a lot of things in the workplace context, like essentially getting people to be good workers is another version of doing something that is in some sense individually costly, but is beneficial to the organization as a whole. So like, you know, getting people to do things that are not strictly mandated by their job uh, description, but are helpful, like sharing information that they come across that isn't useful for them, but is useful for someone else in the organization, covering for people when they're out, you know, all this kind of stuff that is uh, a lot of what makes uh, companies successful. Um, and then also in terms of health, people think about health as an individual choice of like, oh, well, if I choose, choose to not exercise or smoke or whatever, then that might have bad consequences for me. And that's a choice that I can make, you know, it's my, it's my body, like, let me do what I want. Um, and the framework that we think about for a lot of the um, health-related things is that uh, that's missing all of the consequences that your choices have and your health have for other people. Like if you get sick, then that imposes a cost on your family members, it imposes a cost on your employer, it imposes a cost on society at, at, at large, and so um, there's a lot of things that in the health domain that really are actually public goods. It's just people don't really think about it that way. And, and so our basic idea is across all of these different domains, you can get people to be more inclined to do the things that you want them to do by either making their behavior more observable. So if other people can tell what you're doing, then there's more essentially feeling of social pressure that you should do the right thing. You can even just give the people the sense that they're going to be observed without actually having them be observed and that can tap into that same psychology. And on the flip side, if you tell them that other people are doing a thing or that other people think they should be doing a thing that helps establish what the norm is, helps them understand what the sort of reputational expectation is. And even if they aren't being observed, it just creates this feeling of, oh, I should really be doing this thing. Cool. Um Responding right now to um, a paper that's um, uh, going to be published in the Journal of Marketing, and it is challenging the historical way that journey maps have been uh, designed. Journey maps are a tool that are used by, by market researchers to capture a, a path to purchase generally starting at sort of awareness of a, of a company's you know, particular product. And then there's different levels of, of steps, but 
that culminate in the purchase of, of this item and then ultimately um, perhaps some repurchase uh, behavior or satisfaction, some post-purchase activities. And um, the, the premise that they're challenging is that historically this tool, which dates back to basically 1925, um, has been captured as if it's an individual decision maker. And so it's, it's um, kind of the operating assumption of this, of this tool has been, what is the consumer's awareness, you know, evaluation, you know, decision criteria, what makes them finally, you know, purchase it, and then how do they kind of, uh, you know, what governs their satisfaction. And one of the things that's nice about this, this paper's fundamental point is actually we're, we're missing the role of, of others in informing our decision making. And so reputation and the signaling that comes from an activity uh, would be another uh, dimension to to the the work that they have put forward. Yeah, totally. I think I think it's really important. I think the social element is often overlooked, um, and I think it really is like core to the human experience is social concerns, um, and s particularly in the context of purchasing decisions or consumer behavior, uh, like social concerns are, I would say, in, in many contexts, really the dominant motivator, much more important than almost anything else. Um, and, and another thing that's important about considering the social motivations is it's not just that you can mispredict what people are going to do if you don't take into account all of the social factors, but also the social factors are often things that you can leverage without having to spend money. That is like if a standard way that you get someone to do something is you create a financial incentive uh, that costs you money. But a lot of the times you can you can really influence people's decisions using these social incentives that don't require you to provide them with some material consequence, just like giving them information about what other people are doing or giving the sense that other people are going to tell what they, they do. You can often do essentially for free and they can have big impacts. We've, that's like a sort of general theme in a lot of the applied cooperation teamwork is comparing the impact of social incentives versus economic incentives and showing how in a lot of situations you get a massively larger return on investment from the social incentives because they're so much cheaper. Yeah, so we've got a very complex set of behavioral challenges in front of us right now around um, the public health challenges with COVID-19. Um, one of them, for instance, is the use of masks. Love to hear your thinking there and what are the things particularly that um, might help us to understand um, people's uh, reactants to it and also what should public health leaders try uh, to, to do to, to help people who have maybe different views of, of the implications of, of uh, mask wearing? Yeah, it's, uh, th there's a lot of different things going on in the COVID-19 context. Uh, I think there's sort of two different parts of it that we've been thinking a lot about. Um, one is uh, misinformation and people just like, that is in these, in these public health challenges, uh, it's particularly important for people to have accurate beliefs and accurate understanding of things because if they just like don't believe the right thing that can obviously lead them to make decisions that are not good uh, for, for the society. And so we've been doing a lot of studying of uh, COVID-19 misinformation on social media. This is a sort of natural extension of uh, work we've been doing for the last three or four years on political misinformation um, and like why people believe it and share it. And the the basic thing that we found over a whole lot of studies is that in general, people want to have accurate beliefs and people want to share content that is accurate. Or let's say they do not want to share content that's inaccurate. It's not like this post-truth world where nobody cares about accuracy anymore and people are just purposely sharing all kinds of things that they know are false because it advances whatever agenda they have. That is, there certainly are some political operatives that are doing that, but like just the average person is essentially doing the best they can uh, with what they have in front of them. But the problem is that uh, in general and in particular on social media, uh, people tend to be distracted uh, from thinking about accuracy. And so like, when people stop and think about accuracy and think carefully about it, a lot of the time they can actually do pretty well. But the problem is that 
uh, people don't do that, um, or let's say rarely do that. And I think the social media context in particular biases people not to be thinking carefully because you're scrolling quickly through a million things. Uh, you've got uh, mm -hmm. sort of news related content mixed in with pictures of cats and babies and all kinds of things where like, you know, thinking rationally uh, or carefully like doesn't even make sense. Um, and also a lot of times people get on social media because they want to relax and unwind and not think carefully about it. And so I think that predisposes people to essentially just forget to think about is this accurate or not before they decide to share it. And so uh, what we've been doing is showing that um, basically providing evidence for that account of why people share misinformation and also evidence that it's actually the dominant reason and it's more important uh, it, it explains a lot more of sharing than purposely sharing misinformation, or at least in our experiments, more than confusion. Um, and so basically the implication of that is that if you just nudge people to think about the concept of accuracy, then it makes them more discerning in their subsequent sharing, because they, if they think about it, they can typically tell what's true and they don't want to share stuff that's not true. And the problem is just them forgetting to think about it. So you get them to think about it a little bit and they're more discerning in their subsequent sharing. We show this in survey experiments and we also did a big field experiment on Twitter where we messaged thousands of users just asking them to rate the accuracy of a single random headline, not anything that they'd shown before, just some random thing. The idea is just rating one headline for accuracy makes the concept of accuracy top of mind. And then when you go back to your feed, you're more likely to be thinking about accuracy we found a significant improvement in the average quality of the news that they shared after uh, receiving this nudge. Um, and so this is something that we're talking to uh, various different social media platforms about being like, come on guys, this is, a, you should be so happy about this because it's a way to improve quality that doesn't rely on a centralized authority saying this is true, this is false, uh, and so on. It just kind of gets people to take on a little bit of that uh, burden themselves. And so I think in the COVID context, uh, you know, it's, it's particularly hard because it's scary. And when you get people into this emotional mindset, like, you know, they're, they're really anxious, whatever, that again makes you less likely to stop and think carefully about it. Um, and so I think one of the challenges there is just getting people to slow down and like think, uh, think carefully. Um, and another major challenge is that, uh, so, one source of misinformation is like weird random websites, conspiracy theory websites, like, you know, pushing or, or like, you know, supplement manufacturers pushing like bogus stuff. But it's a very different thing when you have the president of the United States or like top party leaders of your party directly stating misinformation. Um, and we have found actually that, that that really undermines people's ability to tell uh, what's true or not. If, if you have sort of elites of your, uh, of your party espousing misinformation, it makes people much more likely to believe it, even when they stop and think about it. Um, and so I think that it's not really something that we can directly act on, but I think that is a huge problem uh, with COVID is that the, the government in the U.S. in particular has really been bad about uh, providing misinformation and conflicting information and like not having a, a a set story. And that is obviously, as the science uh, changes, you want the narrative to evolve in response to the science, but that's not, you know, that's not what's been going on. And I think that's also huge in the face mask context, because uh, I think that there was some serious problems with the messaging. And this isn't even the like, you know, Trump espousing conspiracy theories thing, but I think this was maybe a strategic decision when they were worried about mass courting. And they said, public shouldn't wear masks, only the you know, health workers should wear masks. And the messaging was not super clear. And I think a lot of it said, it doesn't help you. Like rather than saying, don't buy masks because it's a hoarding problem. They said, don't buy masks because it's not useful. Uh, and then they were like, well, no, actually, okay, now it is useful. Everybody has to wear a mask. And I think that set, that really undermined uh, a lot of the credibility. And I think also, something that was problematic is that there was mixed messaging around the extent to which masks are helpful for you versus helpful for society. So this kind of don't get it or don't spread it uh, framing, which is something that we've done uh, research on, on sort of prevention behaviors in general. 
uh, for COVID-19. Um, and our research suggests that the don't spread it framing is as effective or more effective uh, depending on you know which study and what time. Basically, we have found a difference at the beginning of the pandemic versus the sort of middle of the pandemic. But uh, in both cases, we found that concern for the community was a much stronger predictor of prevention intentions than that is the extent to which you thought COVID was dangerous to the community was a much stronger prediction predictor of your of your prevention intentions than the extent to which you thought COVID was a danger for yourself. And accordingly, the messaging that emphasized the like, don't get other people sick was as good or better uh, than the messaging saying, don't get yourself sick which is, I think, surprising if you're not thinking about this from a social perspective. If you're thinking from just a standard self-interest perspective, it should be like, well, saying don't get sick, that should really be the thing that should be the most motivating. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite clearly not. And I think that that has been problematic with masks in particular, as I was saying, because it is almost all of the benefit of the mask is preventing you from getting other people sick if you are sick there's almost no benefit to you individually. Like it doesn't prevent you from getting sick from other people. I mean, maybe a teeny bit, but that's not really the main. I think it's a little bit higher than a teeny bit, but it's not, it's not a guarantee. And, and that's your point. And, and, the, and the skew is, is definitely towards the, the helping of, of uh, preventing the spread versus protecting self. I think it's a, it is higher than a teeny bit, but, but you're- I mean, also, I guess it depends on the mask. And uh, you know, that's like if you're wearing an N95, like, that, that's yeah. a real thing. But anyways, I think, I think that like the, the well, and I guess this also emphasizes an issue here with, uh, with COVID-19 is that it's complicated, right? And there's a lot of ambiguous, ambiguous information. And it's also not super clear what authorities to trust because I think that there, uh, yeah, there, there's a concern about politics influencing uh, what scientific information gets shared. Um, and that is like really, really unfortunate that it went down that road because it didn't need to have like it, 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 you know, COVID wasn't necessarily going to get politicized. Um, but I think that like Trump really politicized it uh, and that was bad. And now we're trying to deal with the, with the consequences. Um, yeah. I have so many follow-up questions. Um, I have to, <laughs> I need to start with one. Um, I wanted, I want to talk about um, the research that you did on, on accuracy and um, just to build on some of the comments that you said about the context of social media kind of primes us to not be in that headspace where we're really um, uh, thoughtful about what we're reading. Um, and I, I want to talk about um, people that do seem to spend a lot of time uh, researching, looking for, trying to understand and then convince others about, you know, alternative explanations or what we call conspiracy theories, but they would say is alternative explanations. And there's a tremendous amount of passion and good intent in, in this research and this surfacing of these other ideas and we need to watch out for uh, big pharma, we need to watch out for uh, big government uh, trying to put uh, controls in our life. I'm, tr I'm trying to not make a straw man argument out of this, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I real, I'll, I'll do my best to, mm -hmm. to try to represent uh, the concerns. So. Um, we need to be careful of, of uh, entrepreneurs uh, like Bill Gates, um, who's a billionaire with a tremendous amount of power he can wield. Um, so, so the the intention there, as as I understand it, is very well-meaning, and the desire to help others see these these threats um, again is well-meaning. And so, there's a, a a lot of time hunting into you know kind of. Uh, you know, the more obscure parts of, of the research world. Um, I really want to hear you talk about is, how do you bring somebody back? That's what I, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what do you think about how you bring people back? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the, sh the short answer is we don't know. Uh, or let's say that's not something that we have uh, sort of directly uh, interrogated yet. We have done research on why people believe conspiracies 
in general, because like a lot of our work on misinformation and fake news, like the, the result that we keep finding again and again is that uh, people who engage in more thinking or getting people to think more causes them to have more accurate beliefs. It makes them less likely to believe false or misleading claims. And that seems at first blush sort of inconsistent with a lot of the conspiracy theory world, because as you're saying, a lot of conspiracists really seem to be doing a whole lot of very careful thinking and digging and whatever. Um, and so there is this, uh, a narrative that, um, that some people uh, in academia have uh, proposed that like what conspiracy theories do is they weaponize critical thinking and they make it so that like the problem with conspiracy theories essentially is people thinking too much. Um, but uh, I saw, I was like, I don't know, that doesn't really sound right to me. Uh, and we were like, I bet the problem, I, I bet that what the conspiracy theories are doing, because also conspiracy theories sites try to tap into this because they're like, you're no sucker, you know, you're not like all the rubes out there that just believe everything they're told. You're a critical thinker. We're going to give you like the real thing. Um, and uh, what our guess was, was that uh, what's going on is that conspiracy theories appeal not to people that are actually good critical thinkers, but people that like to think of themselves as good critical thinkers. Um, and more generally, people that are overconfident. And so that are like, I know every, because if you think about a core part of, of being a conspiracy theorist is basically being like, I know better than everybody else, right? Like everybody else are sheep. Uh, but I really know uh, what's happening. And so we've run a series of studies where uh, we measure, we had we like had people's beliefs in conspiracies, both like classic JFK style conspiracies and modern uh, conspiracies. This was pre-COVID, so we haven't done it for COVID conspiracies, but um, you know, we, we went out like a year ago or something like that. So a lot of the like, you know, uh, 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 the various like alt-right type conspiracies and also stuff on the left that you were talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, like QAnon and for, for some of the like right stuff. But anyways, what, what we did, we had we assessed how much people believed in a bunch of conspiracies and then we had them do some uh, mess, measures of critical thinking where, you know, we sort of give them a bunch of uh, math problems and word problems and see how well they do. And then we asked them, how well do you think you did on the test? Uh, and what you see is if you predict conspiracy belief using both actual performance and self-estimated performance, there's this totally opposite relationship where the better you actually do, the less you believe the conspiracies, but the better you think you do relative to how you actually did, the more likely you are to believe the conspiracies. Um, and then we also did some other thing. We just had them do some essentially impossible tasks. We showed them random images and they had to guess what was in the picture but there was no way to actually do it. And so basically everyone was just at random. And then we said, how well do you think you do? And same thing, the people that are sort of overconfident in their own abilities are uh, particularly uh, predisposed to believe conspiracies. That is, it's actually, it's the combination of being overconfident in your abilities and not being a good critical thinker uh, are the people that really believe the conspiracy theories. And so I think it's essentially people that like, think highly of their ability to understand things and then uh, like go down these rabbit holes without realizing like, oh, actually this is probably bogus. And I understand that saying that sounds like super elitist, uh, but like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what, uh, yeah, I, I don't, basically I, I think that, that the conspiracy theories are just like, uh, pulling in people that are thinking a lot, but not thinking in the right way. Um, and so what we're looking at right now, actually, um, is research on how do you get, like, if you find people that already believe conspiracies, to what extent do some of these, like, accuracy nudges and things like that that we've done in the context of the general population, how well does that work among conspiracists? Um, and so we're actually about to run our first study on that like this week. So I don't have an answer yet, but uh, I don't know, it's hard because we also have a bunch of work on the, um, what you might call confirmation bias. That is when you're presented with new evidence, you assess it in light of everything you believe before. 
Um, and so, and if it doesn't line up with what you already believe, then you're likely to discount it. Um, which uh, a lot of people paint as a bias and some kind of, you know, misfiring of, uh, of, of reason. But actually, in a lot of cases, it's perfectly rational, um, which is that if you have uncertainty about how reliable the source of the information is, then when you get a piece of information, you're trying to sort of do two things at the same time. You're trying to say, how much should I believe this information? And how reputable is this source? Or how reliable is this source? And if a source that you don't know that well, or that you're not sort of sure about how much you should trust it, tells you something that's inconsistent with everything you believe about the world, it's actually like perfectly Bayesian, rational, you know, uh, to say, eh, probably more likely that this source is garbage than that everything I know about the world is wrong. Um, and so even if people are trying to be totally truth convergent and like uh, doing the best that they can, once you get a certain set of beliefs established, it becomes much harder to get them out of that, uh, out of that hole. So um, just to talk about those interventions then uh, that could make a, a difference um, around um, helping to encourage humility then. So if, if there's already a predisposition to believe that my source is more accurate, then should we get at the root cause around uh, overconfidence by engendering uh, humility and allowing that more, more willingness to doubt oneself um, without, without it threatening one's you know, you know, um, perception of, of oneself overall? even as potentially being a critical thinker and keeping that, but, but going after the overconfidence and engendering uh, humility, what, what do you think about that as an intervention possibility? It, it, certainly seems, uh, it certainly seems plausible. It's something that we've been thinking about. The, one, one particular way of thinking about this is this uh, cool um, sort of, at this point, classic cognitive psych result um, from Frank Kyle at Yale and, and some of his colleagues called the, the illusion of explanatory depth, uh, which is, you know, people think they understand things real well. And then if you ask someone to explain it, like, you know, what uh, they did, did some of this with people right after they finished taking uh, chemistry, like Yale undergrads, and they say, how well do you understand the Krebs cycle? And they're like, oh, yeah, I understand it. And they're like, great, explain to, it to me. And they're like, actually, I have no idea. Or like, how does an engine work? I was like, oh yeah, I think I know how an engine works. Okay, explain it to me. Uh, I don't know if something explodes. So, you know, like, it, and, and then afterwards, people uh, sort of have more, uh, a much better sort of understanding of their own uh, limited under, understanding of the world. Um, and so there has been some research on using the illusion of explanatory depth, that kind of paradigm of being like, oh, okay, you think that, uh, you know, that, Hillary Clinton was running a like a child sex ring out of like a pizza store like how would that actually work like why would she want to do that uh, like having people unpack stuff like that it seems quite reasonable to expect that that would then make people be like oh yeah okay maybe that's actually not so true um, and I've seen a few studies on this uh, where the evidence is is mixed like sometimes that's some people have found that to be reasonably effective either on conspiracy beliefs or also on reducing polarization um, and just making people sort of less extreme in their in their uh, political beliefs, but then other things haven't really replicated those results. So I think it's the, the jury is out. I feel like that's one of those things that makes a lot of sense, and whether it actually works or not is uh, you know to be determined. But people are actively working on that question. Yeah, and it's an it's incredibly important area of research to approach systematically, given that uh, we. Uh, seem to be doing a very poor job of having healthy debates with one another. And if we don't understand the role of bias and logical fallacies, then how can we have a, a, a good and, and reasoned uh, debate? And um, one of the challenges is if we launch into calling, you know, doing ad hominem attacks, that doesn't help advance anything, but taking a, a, a calm approach of saying, how does that work? You know, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. How does, you know, can you explain how that works? And yeah. could help us allow much more civilized discourse. And maybe there are elements of, of, of truth in another perspective that neither would have seen because the, the debate was staying at that polarized level. 
as opposed to finding where some of the um, either underlying intention is actually aligned uh, mm -hmm. or, um, or, or just helping the person realize, oh wait, here's where I'm wrong. I don't actually understand how this particular mechanism works. I'm making assumptions, right. and so now I can update my beliefs. But everybody, totally. you know, everybody gets to keep the label of being a critical thinker and wanting to help others and sharing mm -hmm. information. We're all educators and teachers and noble in our intent, but now we can work our way through um, improving the quality of our discussions. Totally, and I think actually like an important uh, element in that vein is that you know, over the last few years, I've started really trying to understand uh, polarization and like how it is that people can have really dramatically different beliefs, not just about what to do, but about basic facts. Um, I think that a lot of the standard narrative is around cognitive biases and motivated reasoning, uh, you know, and things like that of people like tricking themselves essentially um, so that they can protect their identities and so on. But I actually, am much less convinced of that uh, than I sort of was at the beginning. And I really think that in general, people are trying to do like good, accurate reasoning, like trying to have accurate beliefs. Um, and, and the issue is that uh, they're starting with different information inputs. That is like, if, if you have one person that only watches Fox and you have another person that only watches MSNBC, and then they take that data that they're receiving as an input and they in a completely rational, uh, not at all biased way, form beliefs and update those beliefs, they're gonna come up with completely different understandings of the world. Um, and I think that uh, that can also help you understand when you are having a debate with someone uh, from the other side, if you understand it not as that person is stupid because they believe that crazy thing or that person is you know, willfully ignorant that they could believe such a thing. Be like, oh no, imagine if I was getting the input stream that they were getting, like I would see the world very differently. And so I actually like years ago, uh, signed up for the news alert emails from the New York Times and Fox. Um, and it has been extremely informative to see the difference in like both what they're covering and, and how they cover the things that they both cover and be like, oh yeah, if you were only reading one of these and not the other, you would come out at a totally different place, even if you were absolutely doing your best with no bias and so on. So uh, yeah, I think that, and that I think is not something that you can lay at the feet of social media. Um, you know, I think that there is, uh, there is just like a lot of um, essentially consolidation in the media market, like on both on TV and talk radio where like people only listen to or watch the stuff from their side and that causes you know real issues yeah and i think another challenge might be the um, underlying assumptions uh, about the uh, long-term consequences of a particular solution and so it becomes difficult to agree on the means um, because uh, for instance, if we believe, if, if we have a fear of, of uh, big government because of prior experience to corrupt governments, then that assumption travels with you even when you're in a place where there's, you know, reasonably, reasonably trustworthy government. Like let's say in Canada where we have a reasonably trustworthy government, whether you think that taxes are too mm -hmm. high etc. It's still a, a reasonably trustworthy government. And if someone has prior experience in a country where the government was very um, worthy of distrust, right. it, it's hard now to accept in that different context that right. public health initiatives don't have some sort of ulterior motive around, you know, control and right. then, you know, leading people down a potential path of, of more control. Totally. I mean, and I think that that's also actually a big element in the U.S., which is that for, you know, at least the last decade, the right has taken the, the position that the government is not trustworthy. Um, and, you know, there has, there has, and, and basically the, the information input that people that has, that has been, you know, sort of sent out by Fox and right wing radio is the government is corrupt and, you know, drain the swamp and stuff like that. And so it has created, I think, a very different understanding within, even within the US of 
how much the, the government is trustworthy versus corrupt. And that ties exactly into what you're saying is that when then you're called on to uh, trust the government uh, or like do this thing that the government is saying is a good idea, but that you don't feel like doing, uh, it's very differentially, uh, you know, going to impact you based on how you how you see that. And it makes the discussion just that much more complicated. So right. this leads me to my, uh, unfortunately, my final question, uh, just given the, the time that you have, which is around the role of experimentation and uh, using that to help inform uh, public health uh, positions, both to help inform uh, public health policy um, but also uh, to help inform, you know, specific communications or or mandates that are given to public health. Um, in particular, I'd like to talk to you about the benefits and drawbacks of using um, a, a tool that we use all of the time at BE Works, which is uh, Mechanical Turk. We don't always have access to uh, randomized control tests, and sometimes it's the best we have compared to nothing. Um, and sometimes we have the advantage of being able to use it on the path to randomized mm -hmm. control test or one of many inputs that we then start to triangulate. That's the best. Um, when we're talking to public health leaders though, um, there's, there's an impatience around experimentation. And I'd love to, I'd love to have you help sort of un unpack those challenges. Um, well, okay, yeah, so, so I'd love to talk about it. To clarify, in terms of the, the impatience, uh, there's at least two different things that I have heard people raise concerns about, and I'm wondering which uh, or of them you are sort of particularly thinking about it, or both, where one is uh, an ethical uh, objection to randomized trials, period. Like, like that is, there's been a bunch of work on people sort of not like thinking it's wrong to do A-B testing, essentially, um, even if it's unclear which thing is gonna be better because you're sort of using people as guinea pigs or something like that. And then the other thing is the extent to which you can make inferences from survey experiments run on MTurk to the extent to which that generalizes to actual things in the real world. So the resistance is to um, running experiments at all because there's no time, and let alone um, Mechanical Turk being a you know, flawed but better than nothing uh, platform. Yeah, I see. Or running a campaign on, on how to position wearing a mask and you don't have time to run a randomized control test. So do you just go with what you think is gonna work or, you know, beg for a few days? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I think that that one place that particularly like the online experiments, so Mechanical Turk, I've actually stopped using Mechanical Turk for a lot of stuff and have shifted to using more representative samples um, because I think that uh, particularly for the things that involve politics, uh, who is on MTurk is not representative. Um, and so like uh, you can really miss out on things that are, and all, but, but politics and also ethnicity. Um, and we've, there are some other alternative platforms that are like roughly the same price as MTurk and the same speed as MTurk that give you quota match samples on age, gender, ethnicity, and region. So we've really shifted to that. This is sort of maybe more more technical point, um, but I think it is actually important because it, it, it at least a little bit increases your confidence that whatever you're finding is gonna generalize. Like the more representative the sample is, uh, the more sort of you can claim some hope of generalizability. But I guess I would say one way of thinking about the experiment is like if you have an intuition about how something is going to come out, uh, then you can, you know, in a day build and run an MTurk experiment or a, you know, whatever kind of online survey experiment with a couple of thousand people and like see if you're right or not. And like if you think your intuition is right, like, then it should also play out in that context. I mean, I think a, a major limitation, obviously, is uh, the hypothetical, like if you want to study behavior adoption, like wearing masks, like the only thing you can do on the survey experiments in general is say, would you wear a mask? Uh, and like, 
the extent or whatever, you know, and the extent to which that translates into how people actually wear masks is like, you know, somewhat, somewhat up for debate, but like, uh, I guess, I guess I see it as a useful part of the toolkit that has the advantage being that it's very fast and it's easy to get a lot of people and test things very quickly. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think if it's a thing where if you see a, 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 like a meaningful difference between, that is okay. If, you, if you're a practitioner, you've spent a long time, you know your population really well, and you have a really strong intuition one way versus the other, and then you see an MTRIC experiment that comes out differently, you know, I think it's not, it's not unreasonable to say, well, you didn't do it on my people. Like I know this group that's the relevant group. Like I really know what's going on. I don't think this would generalize. Like, I don't think that that's, that that's unreasonable, but like, I think it should, you know, it should impact your thinking a little bit. And particularly in cases where you don't have that strong of an intuition where you're like, I don't know, I've got a bunch of these different things. It's not super clear which one I think will work better. So I can just pick one or I can find out, you know, honestly, in a few hours, like the thing that's great about these survey experiments is they're really fast. And so I would think particularly in cases where there's not like a really strong intuition about which thing is going to work better. It seems like a good idea to test things um, in this, in the, in the, that is, to use online survey experiments as a way to just, uh, to, to adjudicate between things that otherwise you don't really have a good way of guessing about. Yeah. So I think we're completely aligned on make sure that your sample sizes and population is representative. Um, and sometimes that means in Canada or other areas that you're going after, um, you need to be prudent in terms of how you're approaching that. Mm -hmm. um, research that, that and awareness of, of not only your own research, but prior research that's been done is a very careful and deliberative process. So just because you came up with this idea today and you could run a fast experiment doesn't mean that you're qualified to rely on that unless you've got extensive knowledge as well as awareness of the research that's already been done to date. So our assumption here is that there's qualified research and awareness that has already led to this point. So it can't be like, oh, hey, I'm into this thing and now I'm gonna run this experiment. Oh yeah, look, it confirms my hypothesis. Great, we're done. Um, so we should be very, very vigilant in um, making sure that we understand um, that in some ways what we should be looking for is disconfirming and spending more energy disconfirming our beliefs when we're using this precarious tool. And then uh, we also need to um, understand if we're looking at beliefs and perceptions, um, maybe we can get some reliability so long as we're, we're careful with our expectations there. But the further we get into behavior, the more cautious we need to be. And to that end, we believe in using um, behavioroids or other forms of proxies for real behavior. So it's, mm -hmm. I can't necessarily measure you wearing a mask, but I can ask uh, you to take a picture of, you know, where do you keep it in your house and is it near your door or, uh, here's an offer to get a mask and seeing what that, mm -hmm. that interest is in that and finding other proxies besides just purely relying on people. Do you wear a mask every time you go out? Right. So those, right. Are, those are four of many principles um, that need to be leveraged um, to make the, the platform worthwhile. Um, and, and you know, so one, of, one other thought just to interject on that is uh, I saw this interesting meta-analysis comparing uh, the size of public health interventions on actual behavior versus self-report behavior. And what it found was uh, like overall not meaningful differences. And the, the argument was uh, there's all kinds of, that is there was presumably differences between that's if like how a person self-reports their likelihood of doing a thing and how likely they are to actually do it are not the same. But uh, depending on what the intervention you're looking at is, it could still, if you're just looking at how much do you move from that baseline, uh, in a lot of situations, the movement may be the same. Um, and I think the one place that that's not true is if the, if the interventions differ in the amount of social desirability uh, that are going on there. 
then yes. you know you may get differential movements in the hypothetical in the self-report versus the real world. But I think in a lot of interventions, there's actually even if you think the self-report measure isn't great, it may still be that the that the movement is going to be the same in in self-report and actual. Yes, yes. All the more reason that um, designing these uh, experiments uh, requires a scientific approach and with these considerations then it can be done quickly and it can give us more grounded insights of what might happen or what might backfire than just purely relying on our intuition alone. Totally. Yep. Totally. Thank you so much. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to keep, keep talking. <laughs> um, and your insights are incredibly valuable. Um, where would you suggest that uh, people go um, to help advance their knowledge of some of the research that you've been doing? Uh, if you go to um, my, my like lab website is just daverand.org. Um, has links to all the stuff and videos and talks and all that. But so it's been a really great pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for the invitation. Really interesting conversation. Awesome. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.